How are we doing? Good? A little bit, I need a little bit more feedback. How are we doing? Okay, good. Good, good to know you're here. Well, if you're here with, for the first time, know that we're glad you're here. Um, today we're going to be continuing our series in Mark, our, our series titled, Who is Jesus? We're going to be in Mark 7, so you guys can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. In the, pa- the past two weeks, we were in Mark 6, where we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And then immediately after that, Jesus sends his disciples onto a boat, and he sends them to a really bad storm. And then uh, we ultimately, we, we saw simultaneously at the same time, we saw the disciples both in awe, but then they also left with hard hearts all at the same time. And we're starting to see Jesus' ministry turn, and it became evident that his disciples didn't understand, uh, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing. You know, they, they multiplied the bread and the fish, and then they wanted to crown him king, uh, but instead, God sent, Jesus sent them into a storm, and he wanted to show them that he was the I am, uh, but they didn't get it. They completely missed it. And Jesus' ministry, like I said, is starting to turn, but it's starting to turn towards the cross. We're starting to see why Jesus came. We, we, we're starting to see that he, he came to be more than just a miracle worker. We're starting to see he's, he's, he came to be the suffering servant. He's still healing and performing miracles, but it's clear that he's trying to show he's much more than what they thought. Uh, and so tonight... We're going to see um, that he's doing, he's, he's kind of showing that he's different, but he's doing it, you know, in a, in a similar way how he's been doing, using um, common, common everyday examples, but he's doing it using his disciples' dirty, nasty hands, <laughs> as an example. Um, let's just say they forgot the Purell. Apparently, uh, there's a good chance it may have ran out if it's like what's going on today. So that's just kind of where we are. But th- we're going to see an idea that I think every single person naturally wrestles with. Um, and, and, it's a, and it's that thought, are we good enough? Are we good enough? We often hear, you know, generally speaking, um, most men ask the question, do I have what it takes? You know, uh, am, I, am I good enough for the task? While most, men, most women, generally speaking, they ask, the same, ask a similar question. They say, am I loved? Am I good enough to be loved? And I think we see this more obvious in our kids and kids um, wanting the approval of others just from friends or parents teachers, coaches. But if we're honest with ourselves, we see, uh, we do the exact same thing. You know, adults do the exact same thing. We're just better at hiding it. You know, it often happens um, at work, possibly. Asking the question, like, am I good enough for the job? Uh, Am I good enough for the promotion? Am I good enough uh, for the project? This often happens at home, asking questions like, am I good enough for your affection? You know, am I good enough to be cared and served? Uh, this, this, hap- this happens in school, in sports, uh, with friends, in ministry. This happens in dating. That question is something that every person asks, right? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? In our passage today, that exact same question comes up. It doesn't come up explicitly, um, but as we go through the story of it, at, at the root of it, the question that's implicitly being asked is, am I good enough for God? Am I good enough for God? But more explicitly, we're going to see uh, the story brings out the question, am I clean enough for God? Am I clean enough for God? And as we go through this story, uh, we're going to see one of uh, the most por- polarizing distinctions between Christianity and every other major religion in the world. Almost, almost every religion in the world says that uh, you need to clean yourself up first to be with God, to be with the holy God. Most religions recognize that humans are not good enough for God, that we need to clean ourselves up to be with God. And to be clear, you know, Christianity is the exact same, same thing. It says the exact same thing. But the difference between Christianity and every other major religion is the order and the process. 
Virtually every major world religion says you need to clean yourself up first before we can be good enough for God. And as we'll see today, you know, this is, this is true in Judaism. It's true in Catholicism, seeing uh, just extra sacrifices and indulgences necessary to be cleansed of sin. Um, we see this in Islam with multiple ceremonial cleansing, tr- people trying to wash themselves uh, before prayer and ending their mosques. And a lot of people are honestly unsure if God is ever happy with them, wondering if they've done enough good. Uh, we see this in Hinduism uh, with people washing themselves in the, in the Ganges River uh, or burning incense, trying to appease, appease their God, trying to make their God happy. Um, but as we'll see today, the gospel does the exact opposite. Does the exact opposite. The gospel says we come to Jesus first and then he will clean us up. With that said, we're going to see today as our big idea that Jesus cleans from the inside out, not the outside in. Jesus cleans from the inside out, not the outside in. We're going to kind of walk through this uh, story a few verses at a time. It's a, it's a longer story than in weeks past. Um, we have a few, few technical things that we need to wrap our heads around as we go through. This is a lot of Old Testament law and some cultural things and history that we're going to go through. Um, we're going to take about 10 minutes to kind of go through it, get some, through some of these more technical things. I find them really interesting. I hope you will too. Um, so just kind of imagine we're going to be stepping into a history class for a couple minutes. So just kind of prepare yourself. And as we go through the story, we're going to do two simple ideas. You know, religion works from the outside in, number one. But, but number two, Jesus cleans from the inside out. And then on the back end of our time, we're going to see a few points of application. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 7, starting in verse 1, and follow along with me. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay, so we're going to stop there for a second. So we've got Jesus, Pharisees, scribes, and the disciples. And the disciples are sitting at a table, possibly a table, and they're eating. And at first glance, it seems like these disciples are just barbarians, right? Uh, they're just unsanitary fishermen uh, that probably need to learn to wash their hands before they sit down. That's what it seems like at first glance. Uh, and if this were today, uh, we may look at them and wonder, have they not been watching the news? Right? You, should be, you should wash your hands with what's going on, uh, with the current outbreak that's going on. If you go out in public, the, as the disciples did, you really need to wash your hands before you eat. Um, just, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this this week, but I have been a little nervous just walking in public and sneezing. So I've been trying to suppress that this week. Um, and the disciples maybe were doing the same, but one of the things that you, you see in this is that it says the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That's, that's what we really want to look at. What we need to understand is that the defiled is not an issue of hygiene. This is not an issue of hygiene that went um, it's not like dirt. It's not like the coronavirus type of hygiene. It was an issue of ritual purity and ceremonial cleansing. Religious traditions you know, that went beyond the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and in verses 3 and 4, Mark gives some, he starts to give some commentary on the defilement. You know, verse 3, he says, is, is, you kind of see it in brackets. It says, it's kind of a commentary. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That key phrase is the tradition of the elders. So uh, this is cue the Old Testament history class, okay? During this time, they had the Torah, and the Torah 
which is the Old Testament law. It's the first five books of the Bible, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in these and in these first five books, in the Torah, there are a bunch of laws and rules that need to be followed and upheld in order to be good enough for God. And if you go back and read them, there are a ton of them. There's just a ton of rules. Uh, the most well-known of these rules are the Ten Commandments, like uh, which say, don't worship any other God, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Um, these, are, uh, these are the ten most basic laws of the Torah, which, you know, if we really got into it, not a single person in this room would be able to uh, follow these laws perfectly. For example, if you've ever looked at someone with lustful eyes, fail. If you ever told a lie, uh, fail. Not good enough. If you've ever stolen candy from your kids, failure. If you've ever wanted someone else's house or car, fair, fail. Uh, if you've ever sat down at a table to eat with someone and you wanted their food, right? That's a fail. Dunzo, right? Toast. You're labeled not good enough for God. Now, I think you get the point, um, but then, but then there's these all these other there's all these other laws. There's there's over 600 total laws in the Old Testament. 600 of them. And to keep it simple, we can divide these 600 laws into about three different parts, three different types of laws. There's the moral laws that uh, define morality, and then there's civil laws that kind of help work on uh, how to act in society, like the way that you need to treat people. Um, and then there's ceremonial laws, like uh, laws on what to wear and not to wear during worship, laws on how to perform proper sacrifices and offerings. And I, and I think you could imagine that trying to uphold all of these laws, it was a rather difficult task. It was, uh, it was, it was hard. And then uh, others, because of how hard, it was, how hard it was, they then came in after that and created more oral laws. So you got laws upon laws upon laws. And those oral laws that came in after, that was also, that's, that's the tradition of the elders, which is what's in our passage today. And so if you're completely lost, um, they're basically the rules that keep you from disobeying the rules that really matter. I don't know if you've ever been to a museum. Um, there are pretty strict rules about not touching the artworks at the exhibits. You know, that the, what really matters is that you don't touch the artwork, right? You, they want to keep everyone's grimy hands off of the art, right? It messes it up. Well, uh, we know that people can't be trusted very well, and those do not touch signs don't really work. So what do they do? They put the artwork in an airtight enclosed case, almost bulletproof, and then they put a rope about 10 feet away uh, so you can't cross the rope. So if the Old Testament laws were the fence to keep you inside of God's design, the laws that matter, the tradition of the elders were the fence around the fence, right? Just like the airtight glass and the rope. That's kind of what, like the real, the real thing that matters is not, is, is that you don't touch, that you don't touch the art, but they have these extra, extra laws to keep you, to keep you from, you know, breaking the other laws. And so the Pharisees, they were strict law followers and not just Old Testament law, but they had, they, they followed all the extra additional laws, the oral laws. They were the religious elite. You know, they, uh, they not only obeyed the biblical law, they obeyed all the extra laws. The, and, and so they kind of, they did this to show their superior, their spiritual superiority. You know, they were like the people at the art exhibit that kind of stand there and tell you, uh, do, you know, if you kind of walk across the line, they, they yell at you. That's kind of what these, the Pharisees were doing. You know, if you take a step, um, they, they just go, go nuts, you know, so that's kind of where they are. And so knowing this, looking back at the end of chapter six, right before our passage, it says people from all over the region, people from all over were, were bringing sick people into the marketplace just so that they could touch Jesus. They were bringing them all to touch Jesus uh, so that they could be healed. 
And, and, the, and the, we also know that the disciples were eating with sinners in the passage right before this. And they were, uh, they were also with the sick. And so all of these people, they were considered unclean. Okay? And so according to the tradition of the elders, uh, they didn't just need to wash their hands for sanitary reasons. They needed to like really, really, really wash their hands for ceremonially, like ceremonially wash their hands. Um, apparently just running, running their hands under water wasn't going to be good enough. Um, according to the tradition of the elders, they actually needed to immerse their wrists, their full wrists, into the water like it needed to be completely clean. Like their wrists, the bowls, utensils, everything they were doing had to be dunked under the water, um, immersed fully in the water, along with just several other uh, rituals that they had going on that they, could, that they could do before they sit down to eat. And so uh, these religious elite, when they see Jesus, you know, they, they saw Jesus as a prophet uh, the man that con- they considered him, that he, maybe he thought he was a religious elite. They thought he was a religious elite, possibly even the Messiah. And so they were on a mission because uh, they were on a mission to put Jesus down. Because when they see his followers, his disciples, not obeying the tradition of the elders, eating with defiled hands, the scribes and Pharisees, um, they see an opportunity here. They see a window to one-up Jesus, <laughs> to, to show their religious superiority over him. And then look what happens next in verse 5. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, that being Jesus, said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Getting a little spicy here, okay? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So Jesus is is essentially taking them off of their religious high horse and putting them in their place. You know, showing them they didn't really uh, want to worship God. They really more so wanted to elevate themselves. And then Jesus continues in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Essentially saying that they put these extra rules, all these extra rules, they put them above God's word, which they knew was wrong. You know, Jesus has kind of has them cornered at this moment. Told you it was getting spicy, okay? Jesus knew they were watching him, um, but little did they know Jesus was actually watching them too. And he starts to get real specific. Don't you love it when people get specific? Um, Giving an example, uh, he's got some ammo to use here. Look at verse 9, starting in verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus is pinning them against themselves. Like he's kind of got, he's got them cornered because he knows, he knows that they value the law of Moses. But these extra laws that they've got, they go against the law of Moses, and he brings in mom and dad to prove it. Which brings us to continue our history lesson. Um, our class continues because Jesus says the law of Moses, the laws that actually matter, you know, like, he, like the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, it says to honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles uh, mom and dad, you know, they're in trouble. In fact, the Bible says the law says they must surely die, right, if they disobey that law. And so one specific thing, uh, what it meant in practice to honor your father and mother is to care for them financially and personally, right? In their old age, you know, when they couldn't care for themselves anymore. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have 401k plans. They didn't have assisted living. 
their 401k and care plans were their kids. That's what they had. And so their kids honored their father and mother by caring for them and by setting money and resources aside for them uh, in their old age. But Jewish tradition, follow me here, had a rule or tradition called Corbin, which is what Jesus brings up in this text. And this is basically like a theological loophole. Um, It was kind of a way around respecting mom and dad. Because those resources and gifts that they had set aside for mom and dad to care for them, to protect them in their old age, um, Corbin allowed for those resources to instead be dedicated to the temple. And because of that, they were no longer required to take care of mom and dad, which was completely against the law of Moses. Uh, So Jesus, in this moment, is, is, is calling out the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, showing that they've completely missed it. And the fact of the matter is, it wasn't just the religious elite uh, of this time that missed it, because if, if we're not careful, we today, we can do the exact same thing. Which brings us to our first point. Religion works from the outside in. It wasn't just the scribes and Pharisees that cared about their outward appearance, uh, that cared about the way they were perceived, that, that did whatever it took to be good enough for God. Our culture does the exact same thing. As I said earlier, almost every single major world religion says that you've got to clean yourself up first before you can come to God. You have to start on the outside with your behavior. You have to start with your actions first. And when you clean yourself up first, then you're good enough for God. But like these religious rituals that the scribes and Pharisees put in place, even in the Old Testament laws, in order to get to God, in order to be presentable to God, in most major world religions, you need to burn an incense Right? You need to wash yourselves with holy water or do a few rituals to clean yourselves, to enter into God's presence, which, is, which honestly is not completely wrong in theory because a holy God can't be in the presence of, of sin and filth. But it's still wrong because it doesn't work. And as we'll see, it only addresses what's on the outside. And what's sad about this is it's not just other religions that do this. Churches all over the world do the exact same thing. I, we, I call this good old Southern fried religion, Southern fried Christianity. It's a set of rules that says, uh, don't drink, uh, smoke, cuss, or chew, or date girls that do. I know Southern fried Christianity cares more about uh, outward appearance and following a set of rules. Um, it cares more about behavior modification than it does about a devotion to the Lord. In my opinion, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh, people wonder why students are leaving the church, fleeing the church once they get out of their parents' home. Um, and it's because I think they're encountering religious moralism and behavior modification and not the gospel. Not the gospel. Kids and teenagers and college students are bombarded with a set of rules, a weight of the law that is very difficult to uphold in their own human strength. And if we're not careful, we can put the weight of obedience and moralism on kids, teenagers, college students, and even us adults without giving them the actual tools for the obedience. Say it this way. The difference between religion and the gospel is that religion expects moralistic obedience, but it withholds any power to obey. Asking people to act in a way that is coherent with the Bible, the morals that are laid out in the Bible, without the power necessary to do it, would be like expecting someone to drive a car, handing them the keys to a car, demanding them to drive it, but not having any gas in it. Like, they've got the keys, they've got the car, but they don't have any power. If someone does not have the power of God living inside of them, they have no power to obey. And to be 
quite honest with you, to be frank with you, they, they also have no reason to obey. Putting expectations on people who do not follow Jesus to live in a way that honors God, it really doesn't make any sense because in some ways, you know, there are societal pressures, but that's working from the outside in. You know, there's no real change in that. The concept of working from the outside in, trying to change people from the outside, you know, we, we see it all the time. It's not only in religion, we see it in politics too. You know, believing that better education or better health care or some sort of economic structure, believing that it will fix the society, it's just not true. I'm, and I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to improve these things. We certainly should. But to think that something like capitalism or socialism, like some sort of outside economic structure, is going to make a society better, it's ignoring the sin problem. The evil that's in every human heart, like both socialism and capitalism, they draw, they draw some sort of sin in society. They just highlight different things, right? It's, it's, it's working from the outside and ignores the real problem in the world. The problem in our world cannot be completely fixed with politics, policy, and better diplomacy. The problem with our world is found inside the heart of every human that walks this earth. And as we'll see next, trying to see change from the outside in, it doesn't work. Just think about in sports. There's a distinct difference in trying to force someone to play hard and be disciplined against their will and then inspiring them to play hard. Right? The best coaches are not the ones that force hard work, but the best coaches are the ones that inspire hard work. Right? The, the same thing is true with kids and family and at work and school. Starting with outside behavior modification, it just doesn't work. You know, we need a different paradigm, which is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give us a different model. Jesus came to deal with the heart, to work from the inside out, not the outside in, like the scribes and Pharisees. Which leads us to our second point. Number two, Jesus cleans from the inside out. Jesus knows that in order to fix the problem, you have to get to the root of the problem. If you want to see, if, if, there's, if you've got a water spot on your ceiling, for example, the, right, the, the way, right way to fix a water spot is just not just to paint over it and just act like it's not there to make it look better. The right fix is to go to the source of the leak. You go to the source of the, of the problem, you fix the leak, and that's what Jesus is trying to do here. When Jesus was was talking with the scribes and Pharisees, he saw that they were, uh, he saw they were full-blooded legalists. People that cared about outward appearance. People that thought their outward obedience would be good enough. You know, they were uh, really good at painting the ceiling, so to speak, but to make it look good, but they just completely disregarded the leak. He saw something in the scribes and Pharisees, you know, that, that most world religions believe, and unfortunately, most people in churches believe. And it said, if we do more good than bad, if my good scale, if my good scale outweighs my bad scale, God will approve of me. God will let me in. They think, if I'm a good person, if I uphold good morals, if I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or true, or date girls that do, I'll get into the pearly white gates. Because my good, my good, it paints over the bad. Well, Jesus comes in and he just completely destroys this. He just completely turns it upside down because the problem is just one bad thing is too bad to be in the presence of God. It tips the scale far too much. No ceremonial cleansing is going to be able to come in and, and fix this problem because God knows the difference between pure white and stained white. Right? God expects pure white. You know, but our sin, along with ceremonial cleansing, it leaves a stain white. You know, like the stain when you come in and you just can't get it. Like you know the stain is there, but you can't get rid of it. Our sin leaves a stain white because the problem is still there. So Jesus comes in 
to flip this paradigm upside down with the gospel. And as we saw last week, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is making it clear that he's not just a genie, that Jesus is a suffering servant, that he must go to the cross, he must be sacrificed, that no other ceremonial cleansing could or can cleanse. Right? Jesus was born, Jesus lived a perfect life, not to paint over the problem, not to paint over the external problem. Jesus came to die to fix the root of the problem. Jesus didn't come to do miracles alone. He came to be the sacrifice that would provide us a miracle, the miracle of a new heart. Right? He came to get to the, the root of the issue, the miracle of not just being stained white, the, the miracle of making us pure white. And although Jesus went to the cross to sacrifice for us, he didn't just come to be a heavenly sacrifice. He came to be our daily sacrifice. Jesus didn't just come to change our eternal state. He came to also change our present state. Something that needs to be be made clear is that Jesus still cares about our obedience. He does. He cares about our obedience. He still wants us to obey. He wants us to live a life that follows his will, to live live the way he designed us to live. But Jesus knows that a new life in a changed life. It doesn't start with trying to kill sin or stopping sin, trying to just paint over the problem. A changed life starts with a new heart. Once we deal with our heart, God, once God works in our heart, the root of the issue, you know, the outside begins to follow suit. Jesus knows that he must work from a, you know, to, to clean from the inside out, not the outside in, which is what Jesus puts his finger on with the remaining of our passage. Look what happens next, starting in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiled him. Again, uh, Jesus is showing us here that what's on the inside, what's in the heart, is the root of the problem that produces the fruit of our actions, right? Our, Our actions are an overflow of our heart. That's what he's getting at here. Look at verse 17. Just like we saw last week, the disciples were missing it again. Look at verse 17. It says, And when he, had any, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, what comes out of a person it was the defi- is what defiles him. So two things here. Most importantly, uh, he's reiterating the heart. What's on the, issue, what's on the inside of us is the main thing, is the main issue. And then our actions follow. And then secondly, this is a bit of a side note. Um, I'll let you be the judge of his importance. Just in case you're wondering, this is why it's now okay to eat things like bacon and uh, sausage and crab legs and oysters and uh, clams and shrimp. Um, and other things like slugs and squirrels and skunks. Because, you know, Jesus in this verse, he just declared all things, all foods clean. You know, before this, before this, it was like a no-no. Uh, they were considered all things unclean. Um, but that's just an inter- interesting side note. But more importantly for today, when we see Jesus provide a list of things that come as a result of an unclean heart, things on the outside of us are actions that peek onto the inside of who we are. And as we'll see, there's not just water damage on the ceiling. You know, the root problem, as we're going to see in in these verses that follow, they cause many, many, many more problems. Look Look at verse 21 through 23. It says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So we've got a whole list here of things that come from, out, from the inside out. I'm not going to go through the entire list, but it's reiterating our idea that what we do, our actions, our outward sins, right? It's the fruit of a sinful heart. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out, right? Orange juice. When you squeeze uh, a grapefruit, what comes out? Grapefruit juice. <laughs> when you squeeze a sinful heart, sin comes out. Again, our big idea, Jesus cleans from the inside out, not the outside in. And what becomes abundantly clear in this passage is that not even the religious elite, not even the religious elite could uphold God's standard. They devoted their entire lives. These people devoted their, the scribes and Pharisees devoted their entire lives to work hard, to be good enough for God. And as we've seen, trying to prove ourselves to God, even trying to work hard, to follow all the rules, to do everything the right way, to make ourselves good enough, it's just not good enough. So you see, it's, it's, it's in our humanness to, to want to strive, to prove ourselves, uh, to paint over the problem. But it's also in our humanness to sin. And painting over the problem, it won't fix the issue of sin in our heart. So no matter how hard we strive, because of our sin, we're still not rude enough. We're still not good enough, no matter what we do. The root of the problem is still there. And this, my friends, is why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to be our substitute sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross because we're not good enough, but yet also because he was good enough. And this is why the gospel is such good news. Nothing in us is good enough for God's standard. We disobey God. We break God's moral law every day, yet the, one, the only one who's walked this earth that is good enough, that has kept God's moral law perfectly, that has perfectly upheld the Ten Commandments and the 600 plus other laws in the Bible, his name is Jesus. And so knowing this, we know that the thing that sent Jesus to the cross, it was not his disobedience and moral failure. It was our disobedience and moral failure. Our hearts, our hearts produced the sin that sent Jesus to the cross. While at the same time, Jesus' heart only produced righteousness, love, and complete self-control. It was, his heart was perfectly good towards the Father. But yet the good news of the gospel is that he went in our place. He died the death that we deserve, but when, he, when we put our faith in Jesus, he doesn't just make us better people, he gives us a new heart. To put it another way, Jesus didn't come to make us better, he came to make us new. He doesn't just paint over the problem, he gets to the root of the problem. And when we come to Jesus, he doesn't work from the outside in, telling us to clean up our life and then come back to him when our life is cleaned up. No, he starts from the inside out. He starts with our heart problem. He takes us as messed up, dirty, filthy rags, not just stained white cloth, but dirty rags, every single one of us, including me, that have done wrong our entire life, disobedience after disobedience, moral failure after moral failure because of our heart problem. And he comes inside of us and he gives us a new heart and then he declares us clean. He declares us with the righteousness of Christ. The life that Jesus lived, perfectly upholding the law, we get his resume. We get his declaration. Or we get the reward that he earned. He doesn't just come in and shout out the stain of our sin, keeping us stained white. No, he makes us new. He makes us pure white. That's the gospel. 
Our lives reveal the sin in our heart, but in the gospel, Jesus gives us a new heart. And he gets to the root of the issue by swapping out our sinful heart with his pure heart. You know, this is, this is much different than just saying Jesus saves us for eternity. Jesus wants to change us now. He wants to change our eternal state, and he wants to change our present state. You know, every day, we sin. And we continually sin. We will continue to sin until we see Jesus in eternity. But every day, because of the gospel, we're declared new with a new heart, a clean heart. It was new and clean and pure when we became a Christian. A year later, if we're, 50 years later, doesn't matter when, if we are still, if we are in Christ, we are declared new with new hearts. And because of that, Jesus slowly changes our outside to match the new heart on the inside. And that's how God starts to change us from the inside out. The love of Jesus, it comes in and inspires us. The gospel inspires us and works in us. We start to hate sin. We start to want to kill it in our life. And that's the evidence of a new heart. And circling back around to our text, you're kind of connecting all the dots here. The scribes and Pharisees, you know, they thought they needed to follow the letter of the law perfectly. But what they really needed was a new heart. They needed their inside heart problem to be fixed, but they were stuck in religion and legalism, and they were completely missing the gospel. You know, religion says do more and try harder, and the gospel says it's already done. Religion says do, but the gospel says done. Religion says I hope I'm good enough. The gospel says no, only Jesus is good enough. Tim Keller and Samuel said, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I, I obey. And so each of us here today have a few things we need to consider as we close out our time. And the first is this. Maybe you're here and you, and you know that Jesus died on the cross. You believe it. Uh, you understand it. You believe you've been saved. You want others to believe it too. But you're, you're a little worried that your sin is too bad that it's, it's keeping you from God, and you believe that God is still angry with you because on the outside, maybe everything looks great. And maybe it looks like you've got it all together, uh, but yet on the inside, you know you've got something hidden that seems way too bad for God. You're trying to, trying to keep up with the rat race uh, of, of godly living, but you know it's fake. I want you to hear this today. Your striving and your, and your hiding does not please God. There's, there's nothing you can do to make him pleased with you. But yet, hear this, if you're in Christ, it's not your striving that most pleases him, it's Jesus inside of you that most pleases him. You don't have to do anything to please God. It's already been done. Religion says do, the gospel says done. God looks at you because of Jesus, regardless of what you've done, and says, you are good enough. You're declared clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. And when we grasp that, when we're free to run in the, the grace of obedience and not held down by the shackles of the law, we're set free in the gospel. There's a major shift when we start to understand that we work from approval, but not for approval. There's a difference. We work from approval, not for approval. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to God. We, we come to God and he makes us clean. The next group of people I want to address today are those that know the difference between religion and the gospel. You know, we can, we can understand legalism. We can understand the bondage of the law. 
We understand the freedom of grace. We, under, we understand that we work from approval, not for approval. We nod our, hearts to, our heads to everything in the sermon, and yet we're still prone to be just like the religious scribes and Pharisees when we see someone else's sin as worse than our own sin. Or worse than that, it's maybe we don't even see our own sin. I've told this to myself a thousand times, and I, I'm sure many of you have too. Yet my sinful heart, our sinful heart is still prone to be just like the Pharisees. If it's, if it's easier for us to confess someone else's sin rather than our own sin, we're just like the Pharisees. If we see other sin as greater than our own sin, we're just like the Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, as C.S. Lewis has said, it's the grace of God to know who you are. And brothers and sisters, we are dead in our sins, but because of Jesus, we are alive. We have nothing else to stand on. Nothing else. We can't stand on our outward morality. We can't stand on our outward character and kindness. The only thing we can stand on is Jesus and the cross. The Apostle Paul portrayed this in 1 Timothy 15. He said when he calls himself the chief of sinners, he understands his gospel identity as a wicked sinner saved by grace, which is the exact opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. We must realize that our sin is our greatest problem and Jesus is our only solution. It's not our spouse's sin. It's not our kid's sin. It's not our roommate or boss's sin that's the greatest problem. No, our own sin. Our own sin is our greatest problem. <laughs> you know, this is, this is like marriage and relationship counseling 101. When, people, when two people realize uh, their, greatest, their own sin is their greatest problem, it's amazing how quick repentance and forgiveness can happen. It just comes in and God starts to change hearts and lives quickly and relationships start to be mended when you start to stop looking away from someone else's sin and start looking at your own sin. This is really hard, but it's true. There is a massive shift when we, when we daily realize our gospel identity, when we daily realize that we're the chief of sinners, that we're dead in our sins, but made alive only through Jesus. And then lastly, if you're here today, or if, or if you know someone in your life uh, that has not yet put their faith in Jesus, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus as it stands, and this is, this is really hard to hear, and it's just as hard for me to say, but this would not, it would not be loving if I didn't. You know, only if, if, if you're here today and you've not put your faith in Jesus, only half of this identity is true for you. And then it's without Jesus, you're completely dead in your sins. Dead in your sins with no hope and no good news. And that's where it stops. <laughs> but we have good news. You have the opportunity today to finish the sentence, to be made alive. By trusting in Jesus of Lord of your life, Jesus gives you a new heart. Jesus declares you can't clean and gives you a new identity and a new life and a new start. And one of the greatest and most humbling identities we have as believers, as Christians, is that we are, being, we are dead in our sins, but we are alive, made alive through Jesus. I pray that you would trust in Jesus today and let Jesus clean you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Uh, Father, you, you come in and the gospel uh, declares us clean through the cross of Christ. Father, we have nothing but grace here today. If we are in Christ, God, you have come into us. You have declared us clean. You have made us new. You have given us new hearts. And Father, we pray that each of us would come in and that you would begin to, to change our hearts, to change our, to change our lives, that we would work uh, 
from acceptance, not for acceptance, that we would grasp that, that we would, uh, we would live in that, that we, and that most importantly, Father, we pray that we would run to Jesus, that we, were know, that we would know that we are loved and accepted by the God, the Father, who sent his son to die for us. Father, we love you and we need you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.